Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavassin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. Thanks for joining me for a special episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Now, if you want to learn everything I know about Spidey, why not subscribe to the show starting back with the first season? You can enjoy the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. I'd love to have you along for the journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. Today, I'm sitting down with writer Douglas Wolk to discuss his new book, All of the Marvels. Douglas is known for his writing about comics for many prestigious publications, and his celebrated book, Reading Comics, how graphic novels work and what they mean. But now he's got a brand new book, all of the Marvels in the book. Douglas details his journey through reading every single Marvel comic ever published. That's over 27,000 comics in the book. He spends chapters breaking down characters, events, and themes for both newcomers and believers alike. It's a fabulous read and a story unlike any other. I hope you consider checking out his book, All of the Marvels, and that you enjoy our conversation. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm so pleased to welcome on the show Douglas Volk, author of All of the Marvels. Uh, welcome to the show, Douglas. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. Douglas, I had such a great time reading your book, and I can't wait to tell everybody about it. But if you could give kind of a brief summary, what is the appeal of All of the Marvels? What is it about for all the marbles, as you will? Uh, give us the rundown. Well, the appeal I don't know about, but so the idea of this book is that I read all 27,000 Marvel superhero comics from 1961 onward because it's all really one big story. And I wanted to see what it looked like as a story, as a 60 year long narrative, as a 540,000 plus page story, what it, what it was as a story and what it said about the world that it had come into and that gave birth to it. Well, this is, this sounds like an act of just utter madness, like j just first off. And I was expecting like when reading your book, you know, to kind of like really get into that madness. But what, what I like about the book is you get that stuff kind of out of the way straight away. And what it kind of quickly turns into, it's almost like a uh, like a highlights reel 
entry points into the Marvel universe. So what, what sounds at a, at a glance, like the hardest of hardcore things ends up being like a really awesome welcoming mat to the Marvel universe for everybody, whether you're a really in-depth reader like myself or someone new to Marvel. And I love anybody that like can get rid of gatekeeping and, and just the premise of your book, I have to say, I was so pleased because it sounds like a super gatekeepy kind of thing, but but it, it couldn't have been handled more the opposite. Can you can you talk to like that kind of developmental approach to the, the book as you went about this process? What I realized at some point that I really wanted to be was a tour guide. I wanted to be somebody who has covered this whole territory and... I didn't want to say like, okay, these are the 100 comics you must read. These are the high points. Like, no, I want to take you on the tour that you want to go on. I want to show you like, there's some trailheads. Here's some things that you might want to look at, but I'm going to try to tell you like what sort of things you might want to see and maybe what sort of things you might want to stay away from. I, I do not like gatekeeping in the traditional sense. Like I really think the only role for gatekeepers in comics culture is to keep the gate wide open for anybody who wants to come in and join the fun. Is there a version of this book that's more almost like a blog, you know, where, where it's like, okay, this week I'm diving into this thing and it's this crazy thing, or here's some, some find that I, that I had or what the process was like to your soul. Like, it, does that book exist <laughs> somewhere? Like is there, is some, there's some tortured Marvel blog that we could uncover. There, so there, there are actually two blogs. There are two tumblers. One of them was just my note-taking tumbler while while I was working on the book, which is just all the marvels .tumblr .com. The other one was suggested by my son, and it is marvelba.tumblr.com. And it's just anytime somebody in the Marvel comic says "ba," that panel goes up there. Yeah, you, you, gave, that, you gave that a nice shout out in your book, which uh, got a good chuckle out of me. And and the book is very funny too. Your your prose on, on its own is funny. You don't take it too seriously, and yet there are full series of descriptions that go down the rabbit hole into pure Marvel insanity. It must have been pretty fun to write and balance that kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, tone in your book. It was. like I actually wrote this book twice, and the first time it just did not work. It was, it was sludgy. It was hard going. It was just me talking to the inside of my head. It was not fun. I ended up like throwing out about 90% of that first version and just starting over. Just, okay, let's, let us make this something that is fun to read, even if you don't care about the comics at all. Like I wanted it to be maybe not as pleasurable as the comics themselves, but in the spirit of the pleasure of reading these comics. And that made a big difference. And then there was, there was stuff that I really liked that just didn't fit. There was uh, actually a chapter that turned into a little chapbook that uh, got sent out to people who pre-ordered it from my absolute favorite comic store, Books with Pictures here in Portland, Oregon, that it is an entirely fictitious history of Marvel in the 60s and 70s. It is based on the idea that, you know, okay, this is the history of Marvel if they had poured all of their creative energy into comics about teenage girls and young professional women. And if the actual breakthrough comic of 1961 had been Linda Carter, student nurse. And so, you know, amazing adult fantasy changes its title to amazing adults and, you know, introduces Betty of the bugle who goes on to like run a hundred <laughs> issues. And, you know, the, um, uh, the amazing Mary Jane is like the, th the thing that uh, Stanley and John Romita do starting in the mid sixties. And like, 
Betty's old creepy boyfriend who appeared a little bit over there comes over to that title and so, and so forth. Your interest in Linda Carter as a character is, is one of the biggest laughs I got uh, <laughs> re- reading this book. Yeah. There's a whole chapter dedicated to her and how she is actually secretly, in your mind, the protagonist of uh, Marvel as, as a whole, both in that she was there in the beginning, she disappeared for a long time, and now she's like checking back in, almost transformed into a new role. Can you speak to your obsession with Linda Carter? I just really like her. I like the idea that she is a normal person who was there before the beginning, a little bit. Her first issue comes out a couple months before Fantastic Four. She goes away for a long time. She comes back in the early 70s for four issues. She goes away again, and then she comes back and she never really leaves. And I don't know that I can legitimately argue that like it's really all her story, but I like <laughs> thinking of it as being really all her story. Just somebody who was a normal person who just wanted to do good in the world and got a really interesting life out of it. You know, so so back to the pleasure of reading, you know, you say it's 27,000 titles. Uh, I, I would love to know how that number was arrived at. Um, you know, like, what do you choose to include and not include? You know, does the the golden record, you know, like packing count, do, you know, do just the Spider-Man chaos in Calgary count? Like, how do you how do you factor all these things out? So I did absolutely read, you know, Chaos in Calgary and, you know, uh, all, all of the all those Canadian comics and as many of the kind of custom comics as I could find, you know, and you know, Spider-Man, the Hulk of the Winter Olympics and all that. Yes. Um, my my rule was so initially I got like the spreadsheet from Mike's Amazing World, which is a great basis for everything because it, they list everything that Marvel and everything associated with it have ever published from 1939 onward. And so my rule was it had to be a comic book published by Marvel. The rule was if, if the version of Spider-Man who's an amazing Spider-Man, if that 616 Peter Parker could appear in a given comic without a time machine and without traveling through dimensions, whether or not he does, I had to read it. So that was, that was more or less a hack to get me out of reading 500 Conan comics stuff set before the present day i didn't have to read though i mean of course i'm going to read devil dinosaur right stuff that is out of continuity i didn't read we can have a long fight about transformers here <laughs> uh, <laughs> well i was gonna say we could fight about conan too because now he's in savage avengers you know? yeah but this, so. this uh, my, my, my cutoff point was 2017 okay uh it was it was uh marvel legacy um, like so, Marvel Legacy was like the point at which the point beyond which I did not have to read further. Although I kind of did, if something was a marginal case, I read it. You know, there's a there's a Ren and Stimpy comic that's the first time Dan Slott wrote Spider Man. Like, of course I'm going to read that, right? I read all the Ultimate stuff. I read all the New Universe stuff. What uh, about the I, Invincible crossover with Spider Man? Of course, I'm just testing you. Yeah, yeah, no. You know, there was a lot of. Th- Things that were licensed that no longer belong to Marvel, but you know, Godzilla, Dum Dum Dugan is in every issue of Godzilla. And actually, Chris Sims is the person who gave me the best excuse for not reading the rest of Transformers beyond that one that a Spider-Man is in, which is okay, we're gonna get real nerdy here. Death's head came to the Marvel universe from somewhere. He wasn't there before, so he was in the Transformers universe, which has to be different. There you go. 
Oh my goodness. Well, there you go. Uh, that, I mean, that, that is really plumb in the depths. I mean, that erases any doubt that I had about this, but, but now I need to know, like, okay, it, let, let's say you, you did this in a year. I don't know what your timeline was, but that, <laughs> that means you've read seven, about 73 comics a day for a whole year consistently. Like what's the time scale on this? Like, so the time scale is that when I started it, I was like, all right, I can, I can do but like 70 comics a day. Sure. No, sure. No problem. Sure thing. I figured that it would take about two and a half years total to do all the reading and write the book. And six years later, here we are. I, you know, I treated it as a full-time job. I would like exercise in the morning and then I would like get onto either a walking desk or sit on the couch and I would just start reading until my eyes couldn't take anymore. And I was not, I was not reading in order. I was not reading in any order I grazed. I, whatever I felt like reading on any given day, like, okay, today is going to be Iron Man in the 90s day. Uh, today is going to be comics drawn by Gene Colan. Today is going to be a bunch of old romance comics. Toward the end, I realized that, so I was crossing everything out on my spreadsheet, and then I realized there are certain areas on the spreadsheet that I have been avoiding, which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days with a case of protein drinks and 30 years of Punisher comics. Oh my goodness. The, the, the Punisher, what, what does that do to one person reading Punisher like that? It was difficult. Um, can, you, can you chart the emotional peaks and valleys of that? I mean, like, were there any moments where you were like, I just don't know that I can keep doing this? Or is the catalog truly that diverse that you could always pull yourself out of some, like, truly, I, I cannot read another Marvel team up today? Here's, so this is Stockholm Syndrome talking probably, right? But after a certain point, I realized that, like, first of all, any comic that I read is going to have something about it that I like, even if it's terrible. And the thing that I like is usually going to be like, the writer or an artist or a colorist or a letter or somebody doing the thing that only they do. Wow, this is this is this particular creator just being themselves, like doing their thing. And I've read enough of their stuff now that like I can enjoy them doing their thing. The other thing is that bad comics, even more than good comics, really, really reflect the moment in which they were created. Like you cannot confuse a terrible 1995 comic for a terrible comic from any other period. You cannot confuse a terrible 1972 comic from a, com with a comic from any other period. I'm sure like 10 years from now, we're going to look at bad comics from 2021 and go, oh my God, that is so 2021. Those poor people. Those poor people. I feel like that now. Was there a com comic that like, or, or, or a series that you could consistently rely on to buoy you throughout the process? I mean, I, so I saved Thunderbolts for dessert. And like, I saved it for last because I knew it was one I was going to like. I was going to enjoy it. And that was like, okay, finally, this is this is the home stretch. I can, I can dig this. Amazing Spider-Man's been really pretty consistently pretty good with the exception of a couple of years that we don't talk about but uh, <laughs> there's there is there are others like there is there are things that i really liked and would come back to every so often through the whole time i've been like, still reading comics with my son and my wife we still read a comic together every night and we spend a long time reading through the chris claremont run on you know x-men new mutants excalibur all that stuff and like that is solidly good like that was like every night, like there was that to look forward to. That was a nice thing. There was real pleasure to be had in bad comics. 
Uh, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, so you actually read every issue of NFL Super Pro? Like, yes, I read every issue of NFL Super Pro. And as a matter of fact, in one of the late issues of that series, there is a uh, parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 90s. And you're just not going to find something like that in a good comic. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, for me, bad comics, fine. But boring comics, like that's where you really find yourself in the kind of mud. Even boring comics, the same kind of feeling. Boring comics don't last that long. There's not that many of them. I mean, I read every issue of Maverick. I could not tell you what happens in any issue of Maverick. <laughs> but, you know, there's only like 16 of them. That's fine. You know, I can I can deal. Uh, many of us have uh, Marvel Unlimited and I guess have our own unique frustrations with it while also recognizing that it is kind of an amazing resource d- despite those frustrations. You know, but at the same time, you know, uh, one of the biggest things that people do is they go to that read online comic site. You know, you've got your illegal methods of digital scans and it, they're so easily accessible as opposed to Marvel Unlimited and their strange searching. I guess I'm curious what this process has taught you about Marvel's cataloging process. Like, can can you make any discernible sense to their strategy of archiving their content? Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of like what is on Unlimited and what isn't? Yeah, uh, fair. Or just even just your experience with all the different venues you went through to, to find the content you needed. So finding stuff turned out to not be the hard part, aside from some some like custom comics which are kind of hard to track down there like there's an amazing iron man comic that was i think sponsored by dji the drone manufacturer around 2006 around the same time the drones started showing up as weapons in iron man so that like that took a little work to track down but it's real interesting to see or like the northrop grumman comic from uh, a couple of years ago that there was the kerfuffle over oh i remember uh, that yeah yeah uh, what about the, the um, like the the New York City Mayor Spider-Man comic? Is that easy to track down? Uh, was that you're hired? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's on Unlimited. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, Unlimited basically has anything new that is published that is not a Conan title or a Max title or otherwise like complicatedly li- licensed, and basically everything from the past twenty years that fits that is on there, with like two or three exceptions. Everything that has been running continuously since the 60s, with the exception of some issues of Daredevil and the 13th issues of the 1996 like Heroes Reborn series, because because uh, all those guest starred the Wildstorm characters. Other stuff is there on a catch-as-catch-can basis, but whenever Marvel puts a new book into print, those issues will show up there. So like the... Uh, October 1961 omnibus that they just did uh, for the uh, 60th anniversary of Fantastic Four number one had a bunch of comics that had never been on Unlimited before. And all of a sudden, boom, the week it comes out, they're on Unlimited. Great. You know, now there's now there's more issues of love romances on there, which is which can only be a good thing. Yeah, I think they just added this week of all things like Spider-Man Web of Life or, or whatever that one was. Although yet they still don't have JMD's Harry Osborne Spectacular Spider-Man run. I don't really understand that, but that's a conversation for another time. What was the furthest length that you went to find a single title? Like I said, it was not actually that hard. Like I have a lot of stuff. I have friends who have a lot of stuff. 
that was not the hard part. Finding hours in the day was the hard part. Uh, I did try pretty hard to find a copy. Like, I was like, oh, you know, somebody has to have Gambit the Hunt for the Tomorrow Stone. You know about this? Uh, this was in the early 2000s, or yeah, early 2000s. Uh, America Online had a Marvel thing, and they had AOL Cyber Comics. Oh, I remember those. And you mentioned yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And now they are nowhere. And some of them got archived by industrious fans, and some of them did not. And there's one called Gambit, The Hunt for the Tomorrow Stone, which is actually referred to in an issue of Gambit as like where something had happened, and it's gone. Like Marvel doesn't have an archival copy. The creators don't have copies. It's gone. So that is, that is the lacuna. Just in the, the in the aether somewhere. Well, that's that's pretty amazing. You know, you broke down, like I said earlier, each the book into many different you know chapters detailing certain characters, and it sounds like some of them exist but maybe aren't in the book and can be found elsewhere. But um, obviously, I loved your chapter on the Spider-Man era, or I guess er character, so to speak. And so, of course, I'm going to want to focus my attention on it. And you know, like you, I've read just about every Spider-Man comic that exists, although you probably have me have me beat. My journey through reading them has been a bit more uh, circuitous than your condensed read. I really enjoyed getting your kind of more direct, like helicopter view of the character's publishing history, because I, I don't know that I could justify just sitting down and, and plowing through it. I, I, I'm sure you bounced around, but even in the six years that you're doing it, it is still more condensed than I have uh, over my lifetime of reading it. One of the things I enjoyed about your write-up is you highlight a few themes that you see as kind of like ever-present or as core to the character. You know, I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Before we get there, you know, at, at over 4,000 comics, I, I imagine the character took up like a really prominent portion of your read. You know, Spider-Man has often been presented as Marvel's defining or mascot character. Uh, do you feel like as someone who's read, you know, all of the Marvels, that this is a fair characterization? Is he really a distillation of Marvel as a story? I don't think there is a distillation of Marvel as a story. I don't think there, there's one character who does that. I think really the strength of it is that it is so many different kinds of stories that are all kind of linked together. But he's a fantastic character. Like he's fantastically interesting. He's fun to look at. He may, he he plays really well off of other characters. Like you stick him into a story, and that story gets more interesting. I think Matt Fraction uh, once said something about like that. You know, the things that every new writer does when they do their first Marvel story is they crash a helicarrier, and Spider-Man is there, and so is Nick Fury. Like that is that is everybody's first Marvel story. Yeah, because you have to write Spider-Man. He's so much fun. One of the things I also liked you mentioned, and you know, my my co-host and I struggle with this, which is to say, like people always ask us, like, what are all the Spider-Man stories that that I should read? And we made a series of episodes called Essentials, where we kind of plucked a few, like th our top thirty choices, you know, to talk about. But you mentioned that a reading Spider-Man isn't about the big essential stories, but about the chapters in between, the sizzle that makes the steak, uh, a, a, as it were. But so I thought found that really amusing to read that and then see your first choice of story to recommend to people was Spider-Man Swing Shift. You know, like 
which is, you know, it's it's a fine story. You know, it's it's kind of a standard Spider-Man story, which is what you say. How do you pick like the one quintessential standard Spider-Man story? Like what drew you to Swing Shift of all things? It's not a great classic story. It is a perfectly ordinary Spider-Man story, but it points toward a bunch of stuff. It is a good launching point. It's trailhead. You don't, like I said, you don't read Spider-Man for the highlights. You read them for the ordinary stuff because that's the fun stuff. Like that is that is where the pleasure of it happens. There are occasionally like destabilizing things that change the course of the story, but like you don't stick to those. Like that's that's what you read after you've read a bunch of the perfectly normal ones because that's the fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, all of my favorite Spider-Man stories are like typically one-shots or two-parters or just like little mini things that try out an idea for, you know, and that's almost background to Mary Jane, uh, you know, Jonah and all, all the colorful characters that surround him. The first major theme that you, you bring up in your book in regards to Spider-Man is the idea of youth or that Spider-Man is a Bildungs Roman. And this is kind of the argument that Tom Brevoort used in his uh, Spider-Man manifesto at, when he kicked off Brand New Day. And, um, you know, th that's a controversial statement. There are many that have kind of pushed back on, like, youth being, like, the theme, often highlighting just how little time Spidey spends as a child in the pages of the comics. I'm, I'm curious, you know, without saying my opinion on it, like, uh, your interpretation of this theme or idea, like... How do you arrive at youth being such a quintessential part to the, of the character? I mean, that that is the really compelling thing about Spider-Man at the beginning. That is what's going on in the Lee and Ditko stuff, which is the basis for everything after it. In a way that, you know, the first four years of Batman are not the template for every bit of Batman after it. The first four years of Iron Man are not really so much the template for everything after it. But... You always go back to the Lee and Ditko stuff, not to imitate it, but to build on it. Because uh, that is what is interesting about him. This is this kid who has lost his father twice over, and he thinks the second time it's his fault, who has lost everything, who has just been you know, heading in this direction of being kind of a miserable outcast. And then his life gets ruined. And then he has to build his himself up. And he is an absolute social outcast. It is the classic buildings Roman. It is the coming of age story. It is a young person who is completely alienated from his world and has to find his place in it. And that's a story that has an ending. And Spider-Man can't have an ending. And so there are places where it feels like if the Spider-Man story could end, it would end. One of them is you know, the end of the Ditko period where he's climbing up the stairs, he's, he's, he's on his way, he's not there yet. There's that kind of false ending in the middle of, like, uh, in number 50, where he like, throws away his costume and walks away from it. Okay. And there's a different version of the story you can imagine where that's where the story ends. Like, this is the thing that he needed to grow up, and now he's grown up. He hasn't. He hasn't. It is the thing that is letting him grow up, so he has to come back to it. Uh, there's the version that, like, that idea that I completely cribbed from the Super Mega Monkey guy, which is that the last Stan Lee issue before 100, like, 99 is is the end of the story. Like, 
He's on TV again. He's changed his mind about crime. He's thinking about prison reform. That's a change. Things are looking good for him with his girlfriend. He's thinking about proposing and he's got a staff job now and he's made it in the straight world. He has integrated himself into this and he's an adult now. And that's the end of the Spider-Man story. Except it's not, it can't be. And then, you know, he has some dreams and and wakes up and he's got six arms and uh, then it's Roy Thomas time. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, he shortly thereafter tries to cure himself of, of mm -hmm. Spider-Man-ness. Yeah. Yeah. But like the, the title in 99 for 100 is The Summing Up. He can't be a kid forever, but what he can be is somebody who has lost everything and has to start over again. And that's what happens. And that's how we get like the thing that I talk about in the book, which is like the cycles of the story. And the cycles cannot have been intentional, at least early on. Like nobody was thinking like, we're going to put him back to the beginning and make him go through all the stuff he's already gone through. But it's what happens. And that's really, really interesting. Like that is something that the story takes on a shape that nobody gave it. But if you get the long view, if you get to see it from overhead, that's the shape it starts taking. And it's really hard to unsee it once you've seen it. Well, that's one of the things that I found most fascinating about this chapter was like where you drew these lines. So, you know, like you said, you created this idea of like cycles. And I, I like the way you laid it out here, which is to say like, everything kind of returns back to where it started and that's a cycle some of the cycle breakpoints seem obvious right like his origin until gwen's death is a cycle you know i don't think there's anybody that would argue against gwen's death being a defining shifting point in in the title you're you're apt to mention that the book kind of just like loses its way for a while it really kind of does. It does. It, re it really does. So can you talk about some of these like breakpoints for these cycles? Because one of the things that you say is like there's these false breaks. And I think audiences really have reacted to that over the year. And so uh, seeing you kind of chart that was so fascinating. So can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the, the first the first sort of false ending is the one I mentioned, like in 50, like <clears throat> Spider-Man no more. I'm throwing away my costume. Like, no, he can't do that. That is the false ending. He goes back to it. The second cycle starts like, right after Gwen is killed because that knocks Gwen's death and Norman's death knocks him all the way back down or almost all the way back down. It is like the itsy bitsy spider, right? He climbs up, bam, he's knocked all the way back down and he starts climbing up again and early on fairly early on in the cycle we get the clone story which is like planting a seed of something that's going to happen later on which is clever foreshadowing except it's not because nobody thought it was foreshadowing anything at the time but it looks like it from a distance <laughs> so this you know this keeps going the end of that second cycle is like that, that second cycle is about his becoming a mature adult and married because you know marriage is the end of the comedy right he gets engaged and he gets married and the marriage happens and that is the comedy ending and immediately after that story one month after the wedding we get craven's last hunt where he dies uh, that is the tragedy ending 
like he uh, is killed, he's in the ground, and he has to dig his way out to start the cycle all over again. And again, this gets, they, you literally have the itsy bitsy spider motif in, in that comic of him climbing up you know, out of his grave, like the, these visuals that you describe really do play in. And uh, anyway, keep continuing because it's fascinating, your breakdown. <laughs> so the third cycle is, is what starts there. The problem with that is like, now he's married. Like, it's not a romantic comedy anymore. He doesn't really have to find his place in the world because he's he's pretty successful. He's doing what he does. Uh, you know, he, he shifts jobs a couple times, but he's, he's basically got it together. He has his other self, his shadow self, Venom. It is the late 1980s and everybody in Marvel is getting shadow selves. Everybody is getting a second version of them. And the problem is that there's, you, know, you can bring the, bring the old villains back and they do bring the old villains back. And it's just the return of the return of the return of, and it's a story that we've seen before. And the way out of that is what the clone story was supposed to be. The way that that story was supposed to end, like it was, as it was conceived as, oh, Ben Riley comes back. He turns out to be the real Peter Parker. And so the Peter we've been following is now married and can have a kid and, you know, Aunt May dies and he can he can retire. He can go off to his happy ending in Portland, Oregon, scenic Portland, Oregon, where I live. Um, <laughs> and that that doesn't fly. That cannot fly for business reasons. It was the plan. And it makes sense because then what you have after that is here's Ben and he has been nobody for a while and he has stepped into this role that hasn't been his for a while. And he has to figure out who he is and build his life. So there's a way to get some mileage out of that, but it's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. So it keeps going along until finally like, there is a way to break the Peter is, is married and happy and everything is okay, which is everything from Civil War up to one more day. And that ends the cycle. And then he has to start it again. And where he starts is the beginning of a brand new day where it is a reset, but is a really conscious reset of like, we're not going to replay the same fights all over. We're not going to have the same villains all over. That's where Tom Perfort writes his manifesto. And it's like, let's, let's not have him lifting up the big heavy thing over and over and over. Let's not have girl falling from the bridge. Let's make some new memories here. Let's have some new characters here. And it's really deliberately set up that way. We don't see any of the quote classic or Ditko era villains for a good long while. And when we finally do, it's Craven, who was involved in the end of the second cycle. It's a story that is about Craven's absence. It's a story about like him being gone, which is super interesting. And we see him build himself up professionally in a way that he hasn't done before all through Brand New Day. Brand New Day ends with this kind of series of stories that are addressing the ends of the previous cycles. There's you know, the one where like, let's really talk about what happened in one more day. There's the one that's like, let's deal with all the Craven stuff and bring Craven back. It ends with a story where like everybody comes in at once and the center of the plot is there's a baby and we don't know who his father is. 
fathers and sons everywhere through it because Peter Parker has been looking for a father figure from the get-go very very obviously at the beginning less so later on but there's like who's going to be my daddy what we see right before the end of the third cycle is like okay Tony Stark's going to be my father figure Tony will take care of me Tony is the man I want to grow up to be and that doesn't end well for him no not at all that does not end well for anybody (laughs) and that is the false ending of that cycle which then continues um, and there's a real kind of like happy ending to the end of uh brand new day right before big time starts like he's got a new job everything's gonna be cool his love life has come together everything's nice that is always the sign that like something is about to go terribly wrong even the beginning of big time is is kind of breezy right like he's with carly he gets this job you know he's he's on the up and up for a while there yeah yeah absolutely then there is this brilliant dr octopus plot that has been set up the whole time and I want to say, like, this is a little bit of a digression, but one of the key parts of the Dr. Octopus story in that period is when he shows up in Iron Man. There's an absolutely amazing, like, three-part Iron Man story that Matt Traction writes that is, like, it's about Tony Stark being a recovering alcoholic no matter what else he is and seeing the world in that mindset and trying to use that mindset to help Otto Octavius, who is not having it. And that builds up to Dying Wish and the end. Number 700 ends with Peter dying and says, the end. There is the pretense. Like, this is the final issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. Thanks for being with us. We're done now. We're done. (laughs) I love it. I love the trolling. I love the trolling. And then we get Superior Spider-Man, which is brilliant because it is the whole Spider-Man cycle upside down and backwards. It is every kind of conflict that we have seen Peter in over and over and over played backwards. It is the bad father who has eaten his son instead of like the desperate son looking for a father. It reaches its crisis point. It's Spider-Man no more point. I mean, the, the previous cycle, like the Spider-Man no more point becomes Spider-Man 24 seven. Like somebody's real aware of that particular history. And the Spider-Man No More point is where that cycle ends. Like the moment where Otto gives it up and he's like, okay, it's not me, it's you. That's the end of it. That is where Peter comes back. And then he has to build himself up again. And he's building himself up from the top, which is where Otto left him. And we see him take after that father figure who served him very badly, Tony Stark and becoming a junior Tony Stark. And that was really uncomfortable for a lot of readers then. Like there was a lot of talk about like, what is he doing being Iron Man? This is not the Spider-Man we know. It's like, oh, he's heading for a fall. Don't you worry. I'm sure that I'm sure something bad is going to happen at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Which of course he does because his conscience makes him wreck his entire life himself. And that's, brilliant that is slot planning and plotting so far ahead of the game and it works out so well and it is everything we know about peter that that's the thing that he would do he would have an attack of conscience and he would go too far with it mess up everything and that knocks him back to square one again 
which is where we start repeating the cycle yet again at the beginning of the Nick Spencer run, which I had not read all of yet. So well, you can't speak to that. You're in for a, a, a weird ride. Let's just say that. I, I, that, that much I understand. I thought it was really weird, actually, that the beginning of the Spencer run like rolls back as many of the changes that Slot instituted as it possibly can. I don't know that I see it that way, but I know people do see it that way. For me, I felt like he finally brought consequences to the book in a way that Slot had largely been dodging them for a long time. My feelings about the Spencer run are well documented on my show, and I'm not the biggest fan, but I think that first issue really, at least for me, it like made my heart soar. I like a lot of the slot run, but I, it, it, it addressed so many things that I was like, oh, good. Like Peter would feel the consequences to these and that he hasn't felt them yet. Felt very like wrong for the character. So to, to your point about him falling, I felt like that was like a logical progression for, for the character in, in his early issues. I, I agree with you in all the ways you've broken this down, but I want to kind of get your feeling about that story overall because like for me i've largely felt that the the spider-man series has been stuck in like focusing on that third cycle as you laid it out the craven's last hunt to the one more day and you know even nick spencer's run ended up being all about that and and for a long time it looked like he was going to roll back one more day and i'm sure we'll find out some of the details editorially behind the scenes that maybe didn't allow him to do that that's a chapter to be charted at, at another day. You talk about that false conclusion, the he can't go off and retire and let Ben take over. That's for never allowing the character to move into adulthood by becoming a father himself. And I know that like the MC2 universe exists and renew your vows and all of that stuff, but it's not the regular character. It's not part of the cycle. And so it, they're enjoyable but they just don't get you there. I think in the wake of that, it seems, at least to me, that Marvel seems obsessed with the idea of putting anyone else in Peter's shoes so long as they don't actually take over. And so you get this kind of broadening of the Spider-Man as a character. You get the Miles, you get the Gwen, and I have nothing against those characters, but they seem almost like kind of, I don't know, it's weird because they're they're the adolescents now, but Peter's also not an adult, and so he's caught in this cycle, as you've described it, of building himself up and falling back down. And at a certain point, do you feel like – do you think my assessment is correct? And two, do you feel like that eventually hurts the character because we begin to see him as like kind of inept? Like everyone else can move on into adulthood, <laughs> and Peter never can, right? Like Betty ha- is having a kid. Harry has a kid. Does Flash have a kid? No, he doesn't have a kid. But like literally every person in his group is moving on to adulthood except for him. So anyway, I want you to respond to that. Like, What are your feelings yeah, on um, It has to be really, really hard to write a compelling Spider-Man story now because there's thousands and thousands of stories of this guy who can never completely grow up because that breaks the story. And there, there have been so many attempts to... You know, get him out of that cycle and like let's let's kill off Aunt May. no you can't kill off Aunt May that breaks the story 
there are things you can do that don't break the story. You can introduce J. Jonah Jameson's dad. That doesn't break things. It changes the dynamic. That's kind of fun. You can introduce some new characters, but they will eventually have to change and Peter can't. And so maybe the future of the story is with Miles or maybe like, I have this whole thing about like the Spider-Man comic of right now is Ms. Marvel. Like Kamala Khan is that character for the 2020s, which is kind of lovely to think of, think about, but like, I would not mind letting Peter rest. I love him. I've enjoyed the stories. There may be some incredibly clever way to do something. I don't know. Like I, I have a, a secret dream that maybe like that's the next big Jonathan Hickman project. Well, to, to, to go off that word, you said rest, you know, do you think the, like, if, if the story's not going to be about youth as you defined it, is the answer to let Peter rest? Or do you tell stories of Peter as an adult? Like I look at something like Into the Spider-Verse where you've got an adult Peter handling new problems, like his fear of becoming a, a parent. And that still feels very Peter Parker to me, even though that's not really a youthful story. D do you think that that breaks the character or, or do you think do you see that as an evolution of the character i think there's definitely a way for the character to evolve i don't think i've seen it done in a way that feels meaningful or compelling to me i think it can be done i don't know how it's real it's obviously it's really really tricky like the period of spider-man that is just kind of like okay yeah that's that's there that's there is it really is that period where like he's married to Mary Jane and there's not a uh, five-star superstar artist doing beautiful things with him. And where is, like, where is the pain? Where is the torment? Where is the thing that makes the kind of combination of arrogance and fear and humility that is special about what is behind his facade? Are you talking specifically about the Mackie Byrne era? I'm talking more than anything else about the Mackie Byrne era. Yeah. <laughs> but then you follow it up with the Straczynski era, which is even more weighted down in like marital drama than, than Mackie. I mean, is it, is it more a matter of who the creator is or is it just that Straczynski is such a great creator that he could make anything work? Yeah, that's possible. I don't know that Straczynski can, can make anything work. I mean, he's 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 walked off he's walked off enough projects that he couldn't make work. But he also um, like is credited with like some of the most reviled Spider-Man stories. If you want to credit him with those, but yeah, it's it's really really tough to make that stuff cut deeply. And you know, there's plenty of really entertaining Spider-Man stuff from that period too. Like. I like the poor Paul Cornell stuff a bunch. I like some of the stuff that was, you know, in web spinners. Like, uh, there's lots of ways to play it, but the the things that feel really like, interesting and innovative and moving forward to me are not as much from that period. I mean, like, if you, even if you look at like Paul Jenkins from that period, you know, his Jenkins, thank you. That's what yeah. I was saying. That Paul, not Paul kind of, yeah, yeah. Paul Jenkins stuff it ignores all the Mary Jane stuff it is almost entirely it could be um like a untold tales era um so i you're, you're largely right there i wish we would have seen more of actually is matt fraction the f so the first image and the last image of the nick spencer 
Round on Amazing is from one of the very, very few Spider-Man stories that Matt Fraction wrote, like uh, the Sensational Spider-Man Annual. Yeah, to have and to hold, yeah. To have and to hold, which is like the one story that ever came close to convincing me that like, yeah, he really should be married to Mary Jane. They really are a great couple. And that, that is, that is the recipe for a fantastic story. All um, it takes is one, one good comic, you know, like yeah, that, that, that's, yeah. that's what it takes. Uh, one of the things I also wanted to mention, I, I loved your spotlight in this book on uh, moving away from Spider-Man. I, I loved your spotlight on dark rain as an event because you don't hear it talked about that much. It didn't have like a proper comic, but yeah, it, uh, there are some great comics from that era. I loved you, like you discussed how intricate and, and political the storytelling is and how it elevated the, the Marvel universe as almost like a, like showing the potential that a cohesive unit of this storytelling could be. Do you hold that event above all others? Is it like reading through it? Was that like a, surprise to you that like this thing took on such a life it was a surprise that even some of the really minor titles and miniseries that touched on it like it really gave them a lot of momentum like it gave them something that could be going on that could motivate everything else i thought that was really cool like it is it is not my all-time favorite event that would probably be final crisis which i love I, I know, I know, but um, like I'll go to the wall for Final Crisis, but it's not a Marvel event. Aside, to, actually, there is one panel of Marvel in Final Crisis where they are crashing through all the universes, and one of them it is very clearly Civil War going on. But um, yeah, I really, I really like the Dark Reign period. It the central conflict of it is one that worked for all the stuff that spun out of it in a way that it doesn't for you know something like War of the Realms. Where like or or um, oh, what was that uh, King and Black, like King and Black, there were a lot of comics in there that were like, yeah, let's fight some symbiotes. Dark Rain was like, okay, this is a thing that we all have to think about all the time now, no matter what else we're doing, and while we're trying to do the other things, this is going on in the background, and that was cool. I like that. Yeah, I thought it was cool too. You know, again, looking at Marvel from like this helicopter view, what are, what do you see as kind of like the prevailing theme, like the, the unconscious that they're kind of putting forward between between all of this? Like, and and do you think it's a story worth telling or worth the pages that it's printed on? Like, it, it, do you think it's like a, it's like a net positive to society that the story they're telling is it a moral story? Or is it one of fascism and might makes right? You know, I, I'm curious to hear what you, your takeaway is. And it's a bunch of stories. And the story it is changes over time. It is not the story now that it was 20 years ago. It is really not the story now that was 40 or 60 years ago. Like there, there is not a single theme through all of it, except to the extent that like there's some stuff early on, like let's think about science as a force that changes the world like that. That's a thing you can fairly say, like, is there all along. But it responds so dynamically to the world around it and the way the world changes. Like, is it a moral story to tell? Sure. It is a story about what morality is and what ethics are and becomes a story about how that can be a real gray area. Like the last couple of years of X-Men stuff, have you been reading any of the, the Krakoan era X-Men things? Of course, yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, like, they're my favorite. Like, I read that every week when it comes out. That is just non-stop moral gray areas, and I love it. Like, every writer, every creator involved with that is leaning into, like, is this actually okay? Is this actually okay with these characters that we care about a lot are doing? Really? Are you sure? And that that is special. That is meaningful. That is something that you can only really do in a framework like this, where you're telling a bunch of linked stories over a really long time, serialized. You can have people who are experiencing the story form bonds with the characters and then get progressively more uneasy with them. That, that's what is more ethical than that. You kind of um, pose this idea of like, what if Marvel was not about superheroics, you know, it was about these like models. Do you see the superheroics as an essential? I mean, it seems like the essential part of the formula, you know, but you're discussing ethics and stuff. And I know superheroics is a way to elevate that. But do you see the Marvel story as one being like super invested in the superheroics of it all. I know that seems like a silly question, but like, do you think the story could be told without that element as, as a core part of it? Yeah, sure. But it wouldn't be nearly as fun. I mean, so Grant Morrison has this uh, thing that they say in super gods about how, well, maybe superheroes are not really a genre, but are just a thing you can put in any other genre to make it more interesting. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like I like that a lot. Like I don't know if it, I don't know if I would go to the wall for it, but it, I I I like thinking about it that way. And I mean, it's a weird, weird, weird genre. You have to you have to see that it is it is what we have instead of the pirate comics they have in Watchmen. It is what we like. It's just so strange that that is the thing that caught on, and that's the thing that caught on in the 1960s after being so far out of fashion by the end of the 40s that Captain America changed his title to Captain America's Weird Tales. <laughs> you know, that this that this thing could come back from being no longer useful and come back that strong, but that's improbable, but it's also what we're stuck with. And it makes things much more visually interesting than pretty much any other drawn genre you can think of. So fine. I'm, I'm cool with it. It is the water I swim in. I'm, I'm a fish and I'm not going to complain about it. Uh, so final question, because you've already been really generous with your time, you know, and, and this is a bit of a fun one. So I, I was really surprised to find a whole chapter on Masters of Kung Fu in your book. This was really fascinating read because I know nothing about Masters of Kung Fu. And I have you know seen it and I have kind of overlooked it for reasons that you point out, like are, are good reasons that like people have maybe written it off. You made a really compelling case for why I need to check it out. So I, I, I added it to my Marvel Unlimited list. And that was so thrilling about your book was just I'm, I plan on rereading it many times to get more and more places to, to go into it. You know, so Masters of Kung Fu is like a long running series that many, I think, have ignored or especially in the modern uh, lens. But is there like a mini series or a story that you discovered that you can't shout enough about? I mean, on our show, Superior Foes is sacred, right? But like, is there something 
is there something a step more obscure than superior foes that you're like i can't shout enough about this title so there's one and it actually has a spider-man connection all right i've i've shouted this out a few other places but there's a man thing series from 1998 by jm de and liam sharp it's fantastic it is the best thing liam sharp has ever drawn and the problem is that it is a 13 part story and marvel published parts 1 through 10 and 13. The Man-Thing series ran eight issues, and then the story was shunted over into a newly revived Strange Tales, which was half Man-Thing, half Werewolf by Night. And that was supposed to be four issues, and it was two issues came out. And then there is a Peter Parker Spider-Man annual from, I want to say, 1999, which is by James DeMathis and Liam Sharp draws part of it, which wraps up the story, and Man-Thing is in it, and it refers to the events of the two parts that never got published in the past tense. Wow. Yeah. I definitely own and have read that comic. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is the wrap up to the story. And there's a little flashback to it. And it's like, yeah, and maybe we'll get to show you that sometime. Wow. But it still holds together wonderfully. uh, You're suggesting it's, it is super, super beautiful. It is super cool and interesting. It may not be the most coherent story, but uh, it's it's lovely. And I wish that it were in circulation. So that that is that's one thing I love. Obscure stuff. There is that Fantastic Four Iron Man Big in Japan miniseries. Oh, yes. Drawn by the late, great Seth Fisher, who died pretty much immediately after he finished it. And it's, that is just absolutely gorgeous, visually gorgeous. I'm trying to think if there's, there's like a favorite Spider-Man obscurity. It's not um, trouble or something. No, it's not. It is not trouble or something. <laughs> Stuff coming up now that's, that's not, that not a lot of people are paying attention to. Fantastic Four life story thing that's coming out right now that Mark Russell is writing. Like, I really like that Chip Starsky Spider-Man life story. The Mark Russell Fantastic Four life story is just such a clever conception of what the Fantastic Four would be if it were conceived of as a novel, if when the beginning was being written, the end were already in mind, which is absolutely the opposite of how every comic happens. But it's real interesting. So yeah, I really like that one too. That's that's a good one. Well, fantastic. Uh, so, uh, Douglas, thanks again for coming on the show. I want to give you a, a moment to plug all the things you've got going on. Of course, you've got your book, All of the Marvels. Where I've got my people, book, All of the Marvels. Where can people get this book and uh, and where can they follow you and all of your things? So you can buy this book wherever books are sold. Uh, it's published by Penguin Random House. It's everywhere. I'm real happy about that. You can follow me on Twitter at Douglas Wolk. Uh, patreon.com slash Douglas Wolk. I run a secret message board for Marvel nerds uh, where we just talk about one issue that's on Marvel Unlimited every day. Uh, I have a podcast, The Voice of Latveria, which is ostensibly a uh, shortwave radio propaganda broadcast uh, from the Cold War era from Latveria and more actually uh, me talking to people about Doctor Doom comics, but that that is a whole other thing. And yeah, I think I think that may be it for my current activities, but thank you. 
Well, we wish you the best of luck on the book. And I, I know you're going to make a ton of new Marvel fans and, and fans of Masters of Kung Fu. So good. Yeah. So problematic. So good. So problematic. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, Douglas. Thank you, Dan. Thank you again to Douglas Wolk for joining me to talk about his new book, All of the Marvels. And thank you to you, the listener, for joining us for this conversation. Please consider checking out Douglas's book. I placed a link to where to purchase the book in the episode's description for you to enjoy. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, Number 80. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for exciting coverage of the Beyond Saga. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll gain access to our exclusive new issue reviews and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll gain access to some awesome commissioned artwork this season from Ron Friends. Plus, we've got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. As always, this episode was edited by Rick Coast. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider-Madge. So, until I take a page out of Douglas's book, lose my mind, and devote six years to reading all of the Marvels, our motto will always be, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.